But after the drug actually got approval, relatively few of those indications that showed some promise in exploratory studies were ultimately put into rigorous confirmatory trials to test whether or not it was effective. And despite that, it's well known that pregabalin is used very widely off-label for a variety of conditions for which we really don't have confirmatory evidence of its efficacy. All we have is exploratory evidence. Jonathan Kimmerman is an associate professor at McGill University in Montreal in Canada. Now at the BMJ, we often talk about the problems related to the evidence base of licensed medicines, or perhaps about the deficiencies in the outcomes measured for marketing approval. But we don't often examine off-label prescribing. However, a new analysis on bmj.com does that, and Jonathan is one of the authors. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and in this discussion we're going to talk about how off-label prescribing happens, why the trials that might initiate it aren't systematic, and what could be done to improve the situation. So I study the ethics of human experimentation, how we justify risk when we expose uh, you know, people to new drugs, and In particular, I've been interested in the process of developing drugs, how we go from not knowing anything about a drug to getting a drug approved when we test it in human beings. So as part of that process, we've taken a series of different drugs and looked at all the trials that you have to do from the first test in human beings through to later tests that happen after a drug is approved. And one of the things that we discovered when we did this was that a very large fraction of trials of a new drug actually happen after a drug is approved. Companies often will be trying to extend that drug to other kinds of indications than those that are approved. So if a drug is approved for one type of cancer, let's say renal cell carcinoma, the drug company might also want to test that same drug against lung cancer or gastrointestinal stromal tumor, et cetera, to see whether or not they can identify other indications that might respond uh, to that drug. So a lot of this work uh, comes out of trying to understand uh, how drug testing evolves over the entire life cycle of a new drug. Mm. And now, obviously, what you're talking about there is how drugs end up with new indications um, that perhaps haven't gone through the, the marketing approval, but there is something they think might be good for it, and and we end up with off-label prescribing. Um what is it that might initiate one of those kind of follow-on trials? Um, you know, I want to in a little bit talk about um, pregabalin for, for back pain. So what is it that made someone think, ah, so that might be useful for that. Let's go and investigate it. Sure. Well, there are a couple different factors. But, you know, generally, if a drug is active against a mechanism, uh, a particular target, and that target is implicated in different kinds of diseases, then there's good reason to think that the drug might have utility against other indications or diseases than what it was originally approved for. So oftentimes, there's some kind of a hypothesis based on what we know about physiology that explains why people might test against uh, uh, you know, other indications after a drug is approved. On top of that, there are a lot of conditions that we can't adequately manage. You know, you talk about chronic lower back pain, for example, uh, or in cancer. You know, patients that have advanced cancer, they might have run out of established uh, effective 
therapy. And there you might be willing to test a new drug, not because you have a really strong biological hypothesis, but because you, you know, there's a perception at least that there's not much to lose, that maybe, you know, it's possible the drug might be useful. Why not give it a shot in a clinical trial? So, you know, I think that the process of trying to find new indications is driven by a combination of, you know, uh, physiological hypotheses, the fact that there may, might not be really good care options. And in addition to that, uh, for drug companies, of course, you want to expand your market as much as you can. So if you can uh, find other indications other than the drug, other than what the drug is approved for, that's expanding your consumer base for your drug. And, you know, I should mention also just on top of that, that by the time a drug has actually gotten approval, a company might have invested, uh, you know, uh, a lot in establishing the safety and efficacy of that drug. It's a lot less expensive to try to test other applications of that drug at that point than it would be to invest in an entirely new drug because the drug's already gotten over that hurdle of getting approval. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's important, I think, to point out that this at this stage that um you know the the huge amounts of money that go into to setting up big clinical trials to to test drugs for marketing approval you know we're we're not talking about the same scale that that these these smaller exploratory trials are are happening on that's right so you know our article talks about exploratory versus confirmatory oftentimes uh, people use the term phase 1 and phase 2 clinical trials to refer to exploratory phase three clinical trials for confirmatory studies. Most of the kinds of studies that we refer to as exploratory are relatively small studies. They're using, uh, they're not using uh, late time points in a disease course. They're often using surrogate endpoints, that is indirect measures of disease benefit. So there are all sorts of reasons why the evidence from an exploratory study uh, might not necessarily be solid enough to be carried forward into clinical practice. What it might do is to support or justify launching a confirmatory trial. Mm, mm. Um, now, and and we'll we'll pick up on that again in a second. Um, but as I said earlier, you've got pre gablin in the uh, in the article here as as an example of of how this has happened. The the indication of that for lower back pain. So could you just sort of maybe take us through that story to help um, people conceptualize what what we're talking about? Yeah. So pregabalin was approved originally in uh, 2004 for a series of different conditions, uh, partial seizure, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, uh, et cetera, at least uh, in the U.S. In the EMA as well, uh, there was a you know, similar kind of a profile, slightly different, but similar profile uh, for approval. Um, like its relative, um, uh, you know, it's a gabapentinoid, so there's a, there, there's a you know, very similar uh, drug available. Uh, there are any number of different potential applications of this drug. It's an incredibly lucrative drug. It's a blockbuster drug. Um, and shortly after approval in the U.S. as well as uh, in the European Union, there was an enormous volume of exploratory testing launched for this drug aimed at trying to extend it to a variety of different neurological indications as well as uh, pain indications Many of those trials were relatively small trials. They're sort of exploratory studies. A few of them got some signal. They seem like they're sort of, you know, have encouraging results. 
But after the drug actually got approval, relatively few of those indications that showed some promise in exploratory studies were ultimately put into rigorous confirmatory trials to test whether or not it was effective. And despite that, it's well known that pregabalin is used very widely off-label for a variety of conditions for which we really don't have confirmatory evidence of its efficacy. All we have is exploratory evidence. And this has been going on for years. And so, you know, this is really a pregabalin is a great example of a drug where there's great evidence of efficacy for the indications for which it's approved. Uh, there are a lot of other indications for which it is often prescribed for which the evidence is actually really not all that solid. It's exploratory evidence. And there doesn't seem to be a concerted effort on the part of either uh, uh, the company that makes the drug or on the part of public funding agencies to rigorously test the efficacy of the, that, that, that drug against these other indications. Mm. And, I mean, that is interesting because companies aren't meant to market a drug for an indication that's off-label. In fact, companies have um, had big fines for that uh, in the past. Um, so you would have thought it would be in their interest to to do those confirmatory trials to, to actually prove that efficacy, get that marketing approval. Um, why is it that, that these companies aren't doing that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I can say for sure, but I can, you know, offer a couple uh you know, a couple reasons that, that I think are, are probably factors here. Uh, number one, it's, it's absolutely true that companies can't uh, expressly advertise a product off-label, but there are various sort of quieter and more indirect ways that they can promote off-label prescription. So, for example, if you run an exploratory trial and you get a positive result, companies, at least in the U.S., are allowed to distribute reprints of that positive trial to clinicians and although that's not advertising per se, it is taking exploratory evidence and trying to raise its visibility among practitioners with the intention of trying to get them to change their practice. Uh, as well, on top of that, if you're a clinician and you pick up a journal and you flip it open and there's an article that describes a drug being useful, even if it's an exploratory study and even if it's not an advertisement, you're still being exposed to information about the potential efficacy of that drug, and that may also be sufficient to change practice. On top of that, there's this other phenomenon known as seeding trials. We don't talk about that in our article. But here the idea is that actually by recruiting physicians to run clinical trials, you can you know, potentially habituate them to using that drug or familiarize them with using that drug for a given indication and that in itself can change their own prescription practices, the, the investigators that participate in the clinical trial. So there are a number of sort of indirect ways that you can use trials, reprints, positive exploratory findings to promote a drug without necessarily going through the process of, you know, you know full-throated advertisements that you would see on TV or, you know, on, in, in medical journals. Mm. Uh, it's important. I, I do want people to know that the what we're talking, you know, in this article, we're talking about the fact that there are a lot of exploratory studies that are launched. Oftentimes, they get encouraging findings, and they're not promptly followed up with proper confirmatory trials. And yet, these drugs pass on into clinical practice without that confirmatory evidence. And one thing I really want to underscore is it's not just drug companies that run these exploratory studies. A lot of these exploratory studies are funded by public funding agencies. 
And a lot of them are paid for by the, you know, budgets of medical centers. They're kind of investigator initiated, you know, uh, you know, studies that, uh, that, that don't have really any clear or obvious funding source. And so this isn't purely a story about drug companies running lots of exploratory studies. I think there are a lot of other parties that are involved in this story. Mm, absolutely. And, and obviously the doctors who, who go on to prescribe it. Um, now, what are, you know, you, you've kind of, you've talked about this a little bit, but can you set out for us, you know, explicitly, what are the problems with the, the lack of confirmatory studies going on? Have we seen any, any examples that you could talk about as well? There's really sort of three issues that we're really concerned about. The first is that I mentioned at the beginning part of this interview that the reason I got into this is because I'm really interested in how we justify risk when we put people into clinical trials or medical experiments. When patients participate in exploratory studies, the assumption is that if you find something interesting, those findings are now going to be followed up with rigorous confirmatory clinical trials. And, you know, one big concern that I have about this lack of this disconnect between exploratory and confirmatory trials that happens after a drug gets approved is that you're exposing patients to potential burdens and risks in a clinical trial without fully redeeming or realizing the value of their contribution by following it up with proper scientific inquiry. In other words, you're only going halfway down the road to nailing down a hypothesis, and that fails to really redeem the sacrifice that the patients made at the early stages in testing that hypothesis. So there's an ethical issue there in terms of how we respect the sacrifices of patients who participate in trials. There's also some really broader policy issues. If you are writing prescriptions and practicing medicine based on weak evidence, you are potentially exposing patients to unsafe and or ineffective drugs that can be harmful, and it can be very costly for healthcare systems or for consumers who are paying out of pocket for these drugs. And so that's never a good thing. You never want to be practicing medicine too far off the grid of evidence. And again, you know, one of the big stories, one of the big points that we're highlighting here is that the evidence is usually pretty good about a drug's efficacy at the point where it gets approved for the indications for which it's approved. But after approval, when people start trying to test it against other indications, oftentimes the evidence is really quite weak. And still, despite that, the drug is you know, often recommended for off-label applications. Mm. So how do we square that circle? Um, you've got you've got some ideas in, in the paper here. So do you run through those? But, you know, do you have a sort of a preference? Do you have a, a vision for what for what might be done to actually fix this? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we probably this there, we probably do too much exploratory testing and not enough confirmatory testing. And I suspect that part of fixing this problem is finding ways to shift our research resources towards doing fewer exploratory studies, but following up those encouraging uh, exploratory studies with proper confirmatory trials. So I think, number one, uh, regulators probably could play a much stronger role in trying to incentivize or, uh, well, to to regulate post-approval clinical trials, but also to try to encourage uh, drug companies to run proper confirmatory studies. I think also perhaps being more restrictive about off-label prescription might create more pressures for drug companies to run proper confirmatory trials. 
Another factor that we talk about in our article is that uh, with respect to the ethical issues, if ethics committees, when they review a clinical trial that's exploratory, they probably should be considering whether or not there's a clear path forward for uh, testing that drug against that indication in a confirmatory study if the exploratory studies are positive. So making sure there's a really clear, you know, that the exploratory study is embedded in a really clear program of drug development rather than just being a one-off exploratory study. So, you know, before a drug is approved, there's really, really strong pressure from regulators to make sure that uh, confirmatory studies are pursued fast on the heels of positive or encouraging exploratory studies. And the reason that pressure is there, uh, or you know, that, that pressure arises from the fact that drug companies are prohibited from selling a drug until they have demonstrated with confirmatory evidence that a drug is safe and effective for a given indication. Once a drug is approved, because there is not that same regulatory pressure, pressure to couple the exploratory study to the confirmatory study, Oftentimes, you can do exploratory studies, get positive findings, and not follow them up. And so I think it's important for people to understand that regulators play a really key role in creating really strong pressures for drug companies to follow up favorable exploratory findings with confirmatory testing. And that evaporates after drug approval. And one of the reasons why I think it's really relevant, an important part of the story, it's not one we talk about a lot in the article, but I think it's one we, 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 you know, we gloss, is that there are a lot of calls, particularly in the United States, to try to move drug approval, to, to, to loosen evidentiary standards for drug approval, uh, to approve drugs you know, based on exploratory findings, to make drugs available to patients before they've undergone proper confirmatory studies. The effect of those kinds of policies would be to, I think, you know, amplify this disconnect between exploratory and confirmatory studies because essentially you're weakening the ability of regulators to compel, to compel companies to run confirmatory trials. Mm. I was going to say on that, I mean, when a company goes for, for marketing approval, there is a sort of very formalized process. And and what you're describing seems much more like a sort of wild west of of clinical trials. So, you know, who is it that you think should be, or should there be an overview of this? Someone who's actually trying to, I don't know, control the, the, the whole situation. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's hard to think of any one single actor that can take care of this comprehensively. I think there are a lot of different actors that can play a role. So, you know, I mentioned ethics committees can play, you know, an important role here. I mentioned that regulators can probably play an important role. I think if they were much more restrictive, for example, about distribution of reprints uh, for positive exploratory studies, that might discourage some of these kinds of practices. I also think that public funding agencies probably could be devoting more of their resources towards doing con larger confirmatory trials and probably should be spending fewer of their less of their resources, you know, running these really small exploratory studies that might produce suggestive evidence, but not really enough evidence to, uh, to, to guide clinical practice. I think authors, you know, when, when uh, researchers uh, participate in these kinds of exploratory studies, when they write up the results, they need to uh, be circumspect about the reliability of the findings, and that should be reflected in the abstract of the article. I think guideline developers, clinical practice guideline developers, 
you know, many recommendations in clinical practice guidelines are based on low-level evidence. I think it's really important for guideline developers to be able to uh, exercise really careful judgment before they recommend, uh, to, before they offer recommendations based on low-level evidence. Mm. Um, I suppose I mean, I'm looking at this from a from a UK NHS perspective, and if there are people within our healthcare system who are being prescribed these drugs off-label. Effectively, the experiment is already going on. It's just we're not collecting the data for it. You know, I'm a bit of a skeptic about the idea of trying to, you know, maximize, you know, data retrieval in healthcare systems and trying to mine that data for, you know, signal of efficacy or or whatever. Um, You know, I think that if you have a research question, the best way to answer that research question is to design a proper research study to rigorously answer that question, not so much to try to piggyback on an institution that's do, that's really aimed at doing something else, like delivering healthcare, and to try to glean information from that. I mean, it's, it's great to try to get information from healthcare, uh, but ultimately, the, 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 most effic- the most efficient and effective way to answer a scientific question is to design a proper experiment to answer it. There are a lot of confounds and noise that you introduce into any kind of system when you're gathering data from a system that's designed to deliver care and trying to use that now to answer scientific questions. So, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I would be much more of an advocate of running proper trials than trying to, you know, solve these problems by big data. Sure. Um, now, the sort of the, the third arm of this beyond, or fourth arm beyond regulators, pharma companies and doctors, um, is patients. And I wonder, do you have a message particularly for patients in here? Yeah, I think that, you know, patients should know that when drugs are being used uh, on label, so under, you know, in the indications for which they're approved, there's usually pretty good evidence that the drug is safe and effective for that indication. It's not always perfect evidence, but it's usually pretty good. When patients are being given a drug off label, uh, they should certainly know that the evidence behind that off-label oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, is really variable and not necessarily all that reliable. So I think, you know, one thing patients really need to understand, if they're getting a drug for an indication for which a drug is not approved, uh, they should recognize that the evidence to support that use is probably fallible. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think it's important when patients participate in clinical trials that they understand that it happens with regularity, that even when those trials produce signal, produce something that's really, really interesting, oftentimes pharmaceutical companies or public funders don't follow it up with proper rigorous testing. I think patients sometimes have somewhat of a rosy picture about the way clinical research works. In fact, there are a lot of really interesting scientific leads that are not followed up on properly, and they should know this before they volunteer their bodies in clinical trials. You've been listening to Jonathan Kimmelman talk about new indications for existing drugs. The article that Jonathan and his colleagues wrote, Trials That Say Maybe, The Disconnect Between Exploratory and Confirmatory Testing After Drug Approval, is available now on bmj.com. It's available now on bmj.com. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with more. 
so subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find more on bmj.com slash podcasts. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.